Yeah, we get cake. I don't even know who that is. <laughs> it's always soccer in Philadelphia on a Tuesday afternoon. And there's not much going on in Philadelphia Union land right now. It's the offseason. We've got Kai Wagner sticking around, signing a new contract. We've got Mark McKenzie uh, going to Belgium. Uh, we'll have some more transfer rumors and stuff hitting the hot stove, hopefully, uh, shortly. But, you know, we like to take the time to do these um, off-season longer-form interviews and bring in some different guests that we don't normally have on the program. And so we have a really good guest lined up today. I think you'll appreciate him and appreciate the fact that he's a fan of the beautiful game, just like we are. It's Philadelphia 76ers play-by-play announcer Mark Zumoff joining the show. Mark, how are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me on. I love to talk union. I don't have many people I could talk about the union with. <laughs> I thought as much. You know, it's funny because I'm watching Sixers broadcast, and I, I will hear you and uh, Allah is a fan as well. Allah Abdelmavi oh, well, is he's also. A big, he's a big man you guy. He is a Huge. man you guy. And Back I, to his childhood. I hear you guys dropping these little soccer um, references <laughs> every so often. I think you made reference to a tactical foul on one of the yes. Sixers broadcasts. So I feel, I feel like you're bursting at the seams to talk about soccer. In some ways, I guess I am, and certainly my union. So feel free to let's get it on. <laughs> so, so take us back, Mark, because I think, I think people know, I think union fans are familiar that you called a couple union games over the past 10 years. But take us back beyond that. When did you um, first come to enjoy soccer, and how did that happen? Really, as a kid, and I don't know many people who are younger than me who even know that this team exists, but I go back to the Philadelphia Spartans. It was the old American Soccer League, and uh, I want to say the late Walt Chiswitz played with them for a time. Laszlo Kazash, I just remember them playing at Temple Stadium and getting to go to a few games, and some of their games were on Channel 17. I don't even remember who did their games. And then, of course, the Adams came into the North American Soccer League. Gene Hart did their games, and as an expansion team, they ended up winning the league title. And then the Fury, of course, they came in. Most of my soccer love has been through the prism of teams in America and Philadelphia specifically. The last few years, I've uh, latched on to Tottenham, and I quickly discovered in some ways they're sort of the Philadelphia Eagles of the Premier League in that um, I think it was uh, the early 60s when they, they last won their, their league championship. So yeah. um, I, I, I love the game a lot. It is my second favorite to basketball, and um, – any way that I can learn it, whether it's talking with people like you or just those who have watched it over the years and understand the tactics better than I do, I'm, I'm always all ears. See, now Tottenham is a good team to get behind because they're good, but they're not the, the best, right? So we criticize people for jumping on the Yankees bandwagon, right? And then likewise, when people pick Chelsea or Barcelona or right. Real Madrid as their team, it's like, well, of course, because they're good, right? So I appreciate the fact that you came in maybe like on tier two. Yeah, I, I guess. Um, I, I'm not sure exactly what my attraction was, but I gradually uh, cottoned on to the North Londoners, and, and I really liked them ever since. I try to watch as many matches as possible. I'm just thankful they uh, were able to not blow a one nothing lead, which they've done a lot of lately, and <laughs> add, added a couple and got the three points. So I got to ask you to set the timeline because the, the Adams came around, I want to say in like 72 or 73. And then it was the fury, I think for two years after they folded in the NASL days. And then the fever came along and you actually were doing the broadcast for the fever as well, the indoor team. So 
when the Adams started, you were you were a teenager, I guess, at that point, right? And then you got into broadcasting from there. What's that? What does that whole timeline kind of look like? So in 1973, the Adams were born, and that year they won the league title as an expansion team. And I just remember as a Temple student somehow convincing whoever was doing public relations then. I don't remember. It was Doug, Doug Verb who was around then or, uh, or who it was. But they ended up giving me a credential. And I ended up going to the locker room after games and interviewing people sitting in the press box. You know, I'm there. I have no idea what I'm doing or, or what my specific role is. But, you know, eventually I would file reports for the Temple Station and and I watched the games that way. And then the team was sold in its uh, uh, last iteration, I want to say, to a group uh, out of Mexico. And it was yeah. under that ownership that I remember a game where Pele came into Franklin Field with Cosmos and just struck like a 30-yard laser. And I just felt then that my soccer life was complete, that I'd seen the greatest ever to lace them on to, to score a goal before, I don't know, twenty-five or 30,000 at Franklin Field. So those are my recollections of the early days. And then, of course, we went a few years without a team. And then the Fury came in and they were owned by uh, a bunch of notables. I want to say rock stars. I can't remember exactly um, who, who was in the ownership group. And they only lasted like three or four years. And then the Fever came in and that was an indoor team. But it was my opportunity to uh, latch on and, and, and develop my broadcasting chops as a TV announcer. And I did the games on Channel 17 with Skip Roderick, who has been at Elizabethtown State forever and has remained a friend to this day. And uh, I was only too happy when uh, finally in 2010, the union came along and we could claim an MLS team as our own. There's a story on your uh, bio on your website that says that when you did the audition for the Fever um, gig, that Harry Callis was your partner on that broadcast. I'm just wondering what you remember about that and if you can tell us that story and what was that, what that was like. So thank you for asking. So this was me getting ready to make my TV debut and about a week or so beforehand, I had a meeting with a program director at Channel 17 and he said, okay, well, you've never done TV before, so I'm going to give you a one-game audition. And if you pass the audition, we'll give you the job for the season. If you don't, well, then we're going to have to look elsewhere. So I remember the opener was in Hartford, Connecticut. I was in my hotel. I was sweating bullets. I think I slept four minutes that night. And I remember waking up that morning and getting a call from the program director who said to me, listen, your color analyst, who was to have been Skip Roderick, and he was just about as green as I was, your color analyst, uh, Skip Roderick, is not going to be able to make the broadcast. We have a fill-in for you, and that's Harry Callis. So as if I wasn't nervous enough, now I'm just <laughs> losing my skin over the fact that somebody who I idolized growing up yeah. is going to be sitting next to me doing a game. And to this day, Kevin, I really do believe that the reason Harry was there was just to make sure that I didn't totally, you know, embarrass myself and the station <laughs> and the team, thinking that here's a green kid. And if he loses it, well, and he faints, I'll have Harry Callis there to at least pick up the action. So um harry as much as we love him and and was one of the greatest baseball announcers ever clearly had a limited knowledge of indoor soccer but he was a broadcaster and could identify players yeah so um he pretty much let me do my thing we went to dinner afterwards and for about 13 14 hours i was sky high knowing that i had 
share the mic with Harry Callis and gotten to know him better than I would have as an ordinary fan. So fast forward then to 2011. Um, and at the time I was working for the union, it was the day before they were going to play Everton uh, in a friendly at PPL park. And I'm walking uh, around the pitch at the stadium and I see you standing there. I'm sitting there thinking to myself, what the hell is Mark Zumoff doing here? So I go over and I say, hello. And I'm like, Hey, I'm Kevin. I work for the team. And he said, Hey, I'm calling the game tomorrow. You were um, doing the, the play-by-play for the union. Um, so how did, how did that come about? Did, did they get in touch with you? Did you get in touch with them? Was there a mutual interest in having you do that? So being associated with NBC sports Philadelphia, and then they were televising the games, JP Della camera, because it was a friendly uh, was not going to be brought in to do the games or maybe had something else to do. So uh, my boss knew I had an interest in soccer. We arranged a meeting with Nick Sakevich, who then was the president of the team. Uh, we seemed to hit it off, and he was agreeable to it. I had no idea what I was doing, but uh, between the knowledgeable uh, Bob, Rig- Bob Rigby and myself, we, we managed to get the game on. I learned a lot in terms of what to do and what not to do, and really, I had no idea. I remember truly embarrassing myself. I was talking with the PR person for Everton and mm-hmm. I heard them I heard him describe the uniforms as kits and I said <laughs> and I said to him oh is that what you call them kits oh and, and that's what a game is a fixture you know I, I had to accommodate yeah. I had to to learn all of these terms and yeah. um, you know thank goodness I learned them before I got on the air and not afterwards but <laughs> it's a great learning experience I've gotten to fill in for the great JP since and you know, I, I'll, I'll gladly be a third or fourth stringer uh, for the union anytime they need me. Well, that's a good uh, segue into the next question, which, you know, it's funny because, you know, even to this day, broadcasters who have been doing American soccer for 15 or 20 years will st- tell you that they still struggle with, you know, are we going to adopt the British terms? Are we going to adopt the European terms? Or are we going to go with American terms? You know, are we going to call it the field? You know, it's interesting because I think Gus Johnson had the same issue too when he came over from Fox. And later it's funny because he he himself uh, said that, said, quote, you know, I was not good at doing soccer. It was a disaster for me. I think some people make the transition and some people don't. Um, but I feel like surely you had called indoor soccer in the past. Like, wasn't that something to lean on when you did the union games that you did over the past couple of years? You know, uh, I, I think, Probably not, Kevin. Uh, you know, terms like nutmeg, I remember, and one-timer and things like that. <laughs> uh, but, you know, first of all, the game is so vastly different. Yeah. Uh, indoor soccer, I think, uh, except for some of the, um, you know, the, the, the close-in play, really bears no resemblance whatsoever to the, the grand outdoor game. So I basically uh, latched on to the Arlo Whites of the world, people like that, listened carefully, got into their... Uh, rhythm, their descriptions, the lexicon, and I can't say I've mastered it. I haven't done enough games, probably never will, but I think I have enough that I could sprinkle around and, and make myself sound like I actually know what I'm talking about. It's a lot different uh, calling uh, soccer, especially when you're coming from a fast-paced sport like basketball, where the action is back and forth, up and down the floor, football too, you know. Really, it's a lot different than any of the quote-unquote four-for-four sports, although I think you'd probably find some similarities uh, between baseball and soccer and the fact that they're a little slower paced, you know, and you have to learn how to fill, fill time and things like that. I'm just curious as how how you found it going from calling an end-to-end fast-paced sport like basketball and then trying to, trying to let it breathe, so to speak, with, with these union broadcasts. I think it's a point well taken, and I think any – play-by-play announcer understands that 
each sport has its own lexicon, its own rhythm, uh, its own demands from the announcer, whether it's to be rapid fire as you are in hockey or to lay out in soccer and baseball and let the game breathe. And certainly you could even let the game breathe in, in hockey to some extent. But uh, I think what I did was I read as much as possible and whether it was on my sheet inside of a little square that had the player's name and number, personal information about him or other areas of my sheet where I could uh, be able to bring up points with the, with the analyst about the team. I, would, I thought my job would be uh, to be the point guard. And when there was just uh, midfield play where nobody really seemed to be building up or having possession is to lean on my color analyst and set him up as much as I can. And then when play would become consequential near the box or the team had a counter, that sort of thing, I would, I would happily take over with uh, descriptions. So it's like anything else. You learn, you adapt, you understand the rhythms of the game, and you announce it accordingly. Was there anything else specifically about soccer that you liked or that you disliked or that was, was different from what you've been doing with the Sixers? Basketball is a marathon. By that, I mean what, how you need to view it is it's a 48-minute race and teams pull ahead, teams come even, a team will pull ahead, the teams come even. And then, of course, you really focus on the final two minutes, which is the, the, the sprint to the tape. Uh, soccer is, is, is a whole lot different in that regard, and you view it accordingly. Uh, I will say that as a fan, when I watch a soccer game, immediately my heart is in my throat. Because mm -hmm. I know that as soon as a team scores, now the complexion of the game totally changes. Mm -hmm. because one goal can stand up and that can be it. So I, I, that's what I think I love most about the game. I love basketball because mm -hmm. there are a lot of hoops, because there is the madness of the game, and it is this sort of long-distance race for 48 minutes. And I love soccer for the opposite reason, that one goal or even a nil-nil uh, match can be something that uh, can be wildly entertaining and you know, if you're on the other team's field and you take that point, it can be a gratifying result. So um, I guess it's just an appreciation for what the sport is. And I'm thankful to be a fan and I'm already looking forward to this coming season. <laughs> they, um, now, now you, you have two sons, Mark, right? I do. Did you, did you, did they play soccer growing up or do they like the sport too? Or did you ever push, push them in, in one direction or the other? I never really pushed my kids, and quite frankly, I'll tell you that the apple has fallen far from the tree mm. and rolled out of sight. <laughs> I, have, I have two boys who, yes, they're, they're, they're casual sports fans, but nothing more. Neither one ever had anything close to an interest in broadcasting or uh, something sports-specific to basketball or soccer. Uh, they've gone into totally different careers and uh, quite frankly, it's fine. I, no, as a parent, I never pushed. I exposed them. Uh, my younger one actually, you know, would, would play uh, like township soccer and that sort of thing. But uh, chose not to excel. And, and, I, and I'm okay with it. I'm perfectly fine with it. I'm going to give you an opinion that I have. And I want you to tell me if you agree with this or disagree. Um, I, I've always seen a lot of similarities between the Sixers fan base and the Union fan base. Um, and, and more, more in general, just soccer fans and basketball fans where, you know, I think these days it certainly trends younger, 
uh, there, it's more international for sure. I mean, you look at all the international guys who are in the NBA right now. Um, so he's been a younger, diverse kind of uh, more, more wide ranging kind of, kind of fan base. Do you, do you see similarities with sort of what comprises the union and, and the Sixers um, fan bases? I do. I, I think that's a really good point. And quite frankly, or points that you made, quite frankly, I really hadn't thought about it before, but now as I'm sitting here thinking about it, certainly different than a baseball audience, which seems to be uh, graying. I hope that somehow they're able to capture the attention of some younger folks. And football, I guess, is uh, an audience unique uh, to itself and really seems to uh, encompass just about everybody, uh, people of all stripes, colors, creeds, what have you. But uh, yeah, I, in, in fact, I think <clears throat> one of the reasons that MLS is beginning to grab a foothold is the fact that younger people are maybe growing impatient with the game of baseball and they see soccer as, okay, I know it's not going to take me three or four hours. I could sit in the stands and enjoy a beer with my friends and sing songs and have a great time and know that I'm going to be out in a little more than two hours. So it's funny that you would say that. And quite frankly, I hadn't thought about it before, but in many ways, yeah, I do agree with you. Well, and it's funny too, because I think a lot of people would say that, uh, you know, sport is kind of like a generational thing in uh, in the fact that like when you're a kid, you can always kind of point back to like some impressionable moment that you had, right? You know, like I remember like, <clears throat> you know, going up to Lehigh University as an Eagles fan, it was like a rite of passage, you know, like somebody hands you like their sweaty t-shirt or something or signs it for you, right? Now you're like a fan for life. Like they got you hooked. No doubt. You know? And it, the funny thing with the union is like originally 10 years ago, you didn't have that the team's brand new right but now if you were say you were 30 years old and you're a dad and you took your 10 year old to a union game back then and they love the sport and love the team well now you're you know 40 and your son's 20 right so now i think you have those kinds of like impressionable things that you weren't able to do back in the day because we had that huge gap where there just wasn't a soccer team here and and let me add to that and say this i remember even in the 70s and 80s kevin where People who ran soccer leagues said, well, look at all the kids who are playing the game. We got uh, tens of thousands in all these different markets. And, you know, we feel like once they grow up, they're going to become fans of the game. And in many cases, I guess they didn't. But now I think they have an atmosphere with the soccer specific stadiums, with the Internet being what it is and the availability of games and streaming and whatnot, that these uh, young people who were soccer players are now able to turn and say, hey, Here's an American game with American players. I could see, uh, you know, Brendan Aronson and people like that who I can identify with who have become really good players and, in fact, are now playing in Europe. Uh, there are a lot of young people that I meet who are fans of the international game, whether it's, uh, you know, the Premier League or any, any league in any of the other countries. So I think, finally, young people are beginning to grab onto the sport in a big way, and I think that's one of the secrets to... Uh, the emerging success of MLS. You know, it's funny because we talk a lot about, uh, you know, the big saying is uh, four for four, right? Phillies, Flyers, Sixers, Eagles, and you support your local teams or whatever. I'm always, I've always been kind of fascinated. I will complain all the time about people who support the four, four major sports here in Philadelphia, but then they have like Liverpool and they don't really care about the union. And uh, like, I, I understand, I think we all understand that MLS is not at the level of the Premier League or of the Champions League or anything like that. Um, yeah, but I've always told people like, okay, so the union may not be the best team in the world, but they're our team. 
you know, and like you support local. That's what we grew up thinking. Right. Um, I'm just curious your take on that. Like people who like soccer in Philly, who are into the European game, but kind of like aren't really MLS people. So I see that in a couple of ways. First of all, I happen to agree with you that if it's a Philly team, I'm with the team unless I just could care less about the sport. Yeah. But in this case, I certainly love soccer and I'm more than happy to have an MLS team. And yes, when I go out to Subaru Park, I know it's not Premier League, but my goodness, it's live and they're professionals. And every once in a while, there is a guy who's played uh, in the top league um, for, for a foreign country. So um, I, I enjoy it from that perspective. And as far as, you know, being fans of Liverpool and not the union, uh, that's probably some soccer snobbery coming in, whereby they realize that the Premier League is probably the best league in the world. Or, you know, if you're in the Bundesliga or whatever it happens to be, uh, that is your team and you appreciate that quality of soccer. Um, I don't know where MLS falls on the world spectrum in terms of how good the league is, but um, I do enjoy it from the perspective that it's live soccer. But I can also understand how people can uh, grab hold of a Liverpool or whatever and say, OK, that's my team. And, um, you know, I enjoy that high level of soccer more than I do MLS. And I could care less about the fact that I have a Philly team to root for. Obviously, it's a lot different of a union team than the teams that you called back in the day. Uh, Brandon Aronson sold for $9 million. Mark McKenzie sold for $5 million. They win the Supporter Shield. They're pumping kids through the academy. Um, it's just been fascinating for us to watch and a, and a great surprise, but I mean, they've committed to this approach and it's giving them a lot of success and they're not spending $10 million on David Beckham or superstar players and, and they're doing it their own way. Um, I've found it refreshing and fascinating and I'm happy for all those guys. I'm curious as to how, how you see the, their approach with uh, going local through the Academy and the success that they've had. So uh, I can't say that I'm qualified to comment based on my 40 or 50 year expertise in soccer. In fact, Kevin, because I was brought up pretty much in the environment of the four major sports leagues that I, I had to go to Allah Abdanabi and say, why are they selling players? Why do they sell them? Why don't they keep them? I mean, Brendan Aronson, a local favorite. Here's a guy (laughs) that I would want to have around for 15 years. But I get it. I understand the economics now a little bit better and why it behooves them to do this, why it's better for him and for the union. And my only hope now is because they do have a hole at at the number 10 position that they could spend some of this money and find somebody who can take that position. And I mean, Aronson was was just a terrific player with great vision and turned better than any player that I've seen in a union uniform. But uh, maybe they could find somebody who could fill his holes. I'm not sure that Paxton is ready to do so, but, um, <laughs> you know, or, or Anthony Fontana, but maybe they could find somebody in Europe or South America who could fill those shoes and is young enough to grow with the team and be around for a while. You know, it was fascinating because uh, the union won the supporter shield. I've only got two more questions for you. the union won the supporter shield. And for us trying to sell the sport to the quote unquote four for four people, I thought it would be easy to say, Hey, they want a trophy. Like what, that's the most black and white thing on the planet. Okay. The team finally won a trophy. Like surely people can get on board with that. Right. Um, I felt like people didn't necessarily understand that totally because they didn't the concept of getting a trophy for having the best regular season is kind of a foreign thing to the American sports fan. Um, I mean, did, did you sense that people latched on to the union or appreciated the success that they had this year? Or do you still feel like some of that's falling on deaf ears? 
So I think you make some valid points in terms of people not appreciating the fact that you win a trophy. I think with the union, all those times here in the finals of the U.S. Open Cup, if they had won that trophy, if it would have created any sort of ripple in the local sports scene. I did feel, Kevin, that having won the Shield, however, having made the playoffs and generating a lot of excitement among the hardcore fan base, that it had begun to permeate out. And some other people were saying, hey, here's our, you know, with the Eagles faltering and the Phillies having problems, isn't it great that at least we have somebody that we can watch and root for? Unfortunately, the, the poor showing against New England in the playoff game. But my point to you is, I think had the union progressed and maybe even gotten to MLS Cup finals, uh, I, I, I do think that people would have set up and taken notice. And I do like to think that some more fans would have been generated because of that. Mark, this is the last one I have for you. And it segues perfectly from what we were just talking about. But, you know, for the, from the union's perspective and from a fan perspective, uh, they've now completed a couple of big money European transfers. The academy is rolling. The pipeline is working. They won the first trophy. Um, I, I, I what to, to in your estimate, in order for the union to take the next step, um, it sounds to me like you would think that a, a playoff run would be the most important. Is that what you is that what the next level is for this team as a playoff run or win, winning MLS Cup itself? Absolutely. I, I can't think of anything that would satisfy me that would satisfy the fan base more than that. Um, I, listen. To me, the greatest moment so far is a first-round win when they came back against Red Bulls a couple of years ago. Uh, the Supporters' Shield, I guess, being next. But, yeah, to make a definable run and to create excitement in the city of Philadelphia, not only among the fan base, but those who might be on the periphery of the fan base, I think is the way to go. And hope springs eternal. I am, uh, I'm really optimistic, and I would like to think, and I've seen this play out many times, Kevin, in the NBA, the Michael Jordan days where you need to fail first before you need to succeed. They have the core of the team now that failed and perhaps they have a deeper understanding as to what it is that they need to do, not only in the regular season, but to get themselves mentally ready for the playoffs. They just didn't seem mentally ready. And, um, you know, I want to see my boy uh, El Brujo again, because he's, he along with Ali Bedoya <laughs> are, are my two favorites. I just love the way they both play the game. You like mid, is, is the midfield the, the uh, hard tackling, no-nonsense midfielder? Is that your kind of player? Yeah. A, a really strong number six like uh, El Brujo, I think, is something that, uh, to me, gets me excited because he's the first line of defense, and I, I just love the way he plays. Listen, he didn't play well in the playoff game. Not that anybody did, but it turns out that yeah. he was injured. Mm-hmm. And I think it was a tremendous pickup. And, I, and you know, I think when he, he tackles the way he does, and just stay away from the yellow cards, but <laughs> – when he plays the way he does, I would like to think uh, it's infectious and, um, you know, will carry over with some of the other players in the field as well. Well, well that makes me very happy to hear that, that you appreciate uh, a good, industrious, hardworking midfielder, uh, defense first, you know, because I played center back my entire life. So I gushed, of course, I gushed over Mark McKenzie and thought he was the greatest player of all time. But, <laughs> you know, there's some people who... Um, especially the kids, they like the goal scoring, right? And the tricks and nutmegs and stuff like that. So I appreciate that you appreciate that. Well, and listen, uh, you're a center back. Uh, I think the union could use one, right? Now that McKenzie's <laughs> been sold. So come on, man. I don't know. I think it's I'm washed fit. up. Let's go. I think I'm washed up. I got a kid and I'm 36 years old, so I don't, I don't have much left in the, much left in the mm-hmm. legs. But I'll tell you what, maybe uh, we'll get these uh, vaccines hopefully sooner rather than later. Maybe we'll get uh, – 
Subaru Park filled up again. And uh, we'll have to get you down for a, another game as a bystander, and we'll take you to the new brewery uh, outside of the stadium, and we'll, we'll buy you a beer. How does that sound? I'm there, brother. Thanks Excellent. for having me on. All right, Mark Zumoff, we appreciate it, man. Thank you very much for your time. It's always good to know that there's another – uh, soccer fan in the Philadelphia sports media, and uh, we will continue to grow the beautiful game. All right, let's see what you got for me in the questions, comments, and concerns department. This one is from Eric. He says, what would you give for MLS to let teams design, design their own uniforms, and when does this dumb Adidas contract end? <clears throat> well, it doesn't end for a while. It goes until 2024, they did the renewal back in 2017 and it was a six year contract. So we get, we're only like halfway through it right now. But uh, yeah, I mean, every, every team in every league wants to design their own uniforms or have, have say over what they wear or whatever, but it's, you know, it's money, it's sponsorship. There, there's, there's too much cash left on the table by letting the teams do it themselves. You know, I remember the UFC fighters like originally hated, doing uh the reebok deal you know but it's like it is what it is it's the money comes from reebok to the company and it just it is what it is you know so we're kind of stuck with it whether we like it or not uh big mac is says is tommy bringing the old onion bag to the interview unfortunately he is not uh but i'd like to get danny higginbotham on i think he'd be a good interview maybe we'll try to line him up closer to the season or even get him on during the season so then we can talk about the season itself uh, this one's from Union Hulk. It's all capital letters from Union Hulk. It says, Kevin Dino, are you worried that other teams are reloading and we haven't done anything yet? Also, in Limp Biscuit's gospel song Nookie, why do they say stick the cookie? It's not clear. Yeah, I don't think there was anything particularly uh, like specific about I don't think cookie means anything. I think it just rhymed. Right? Like, didn't they just pick it because it, it rhymes? It was funny because, <laughs> like, you look back at that now and, like, it's so stupid to think that, like, what what, is, what the hell is he talking about here? But that video is the bomb back in the day. Limp Biscuit, Yeah, I can get down with Limp Biscuit. That the big One of the biggest days ever was, like, in 1999, TRL, Total Request, Request Live, where Limp Biscuit and Corn battled with the Backstreet Boys and In Sync for that entire summer, and then Limp Biscuit finally beat them out uh, for number one. The number one song the summer of 1999 was Nookie, and that song was the shit back then. You you can go to Limp Biscuit, go to like uh, YouTube and type in Limp Biscuit Live, like 2015, 2016, 2017, and they're playing to like massive crowds in Europe. Like people still love them, dude. So I don't know. They they kind of fell into that like new metal kind of thing, and people thought they were corny. But back then, Limp Biscuit was the shit. All right, this is from John. He says uh, we as fans have our aspirations for the season. What do you think Ernst has outlined for twenty twenty one goals? Uh, does anything in his philosophy suggest we'll take the Champions League seriously? Um. Yeah, I don't see why not. I don't know why he would be against it. The only funky thing here is with the Champions League. It's like, I don't, you know, with, with COVID and trying to figure out what the schedule is, I don't know how you can, you know, I don't know what the, the budget's going to look like. I don't know how much they're going to take from the Mark McKenzie and Brendan Aronson sale and and how much you're going to put into the first team because not only do you need to replace those guys, but you kind of got to beef up to play multiple competitions at the same time. So it's it's hard to say, but... I mean, I, I still think the goal, the the goal, like we said with Mark, 
okay, you got your first trophy, you completed your sales. I mean, I think it's a playoff run still. It would be nice to win the U.S. Open Cup because you haven't done that yet. You know, be have, have a respectful showing in the CCL, sure. But I, I think, like, if you want to take the next step, not just for Union fans, but for the four for four people and try to keep growing the team and growing the game, I think the biggest impact is having playoff success here. I still don't, I don't think people even understand the Champions League either. They'll be like, oh, they beat a team from Costa Rica. I don't get it. Like, because they're so, like, four for four people are so, like, brutish and don't understand that. I think the only thing that resonates is, like, playoff run, maybe winning an MLS Cup and going for it, you know? So that's what I think the goal should be. Uh, Jared says, what's your prediction of a season start date with, with the current CBA situation? <clears throat> oh, God. I have no idea. You know, if they could get started. Well, when did they start last year? So they started at the end of February last year. They played the two games before the cancellation or before the postponement. God, I mean, if they could get started by mid-March or even like the end of March, right before April, even if they had to play a little bit of a shortened season, I mean, I think that would that would work. I don't think the CBA thing is going to amount to much of anything. There's there's never stoppages in MLS, and the, both sides know what's at stake, and they're not going to, you know, if there's something that that happens where there's a. Uh, you know, there's a stalemate or something. It would be resolved pretty quickly. I think they're just getting it, getting their, uh, you know, getting their sides out pretty early here, and we're going to start posturing, and then we'll all agree on something, and we'll start playing. That's usually how these things work, you know. Um, when and how will the union bring in new players from James Lockerbie? Um, yeah, well, let's let's just do a quick exercise, right? Because we always like to do an exercise on the podcast. So Mark McKenzie's no longer here. Brendan Aronson's no longer here. If we had to put together a starting lineup as of right now, it would be Casper. It would be Sergio Santos. Uh, we would slide Anthony Fontana to the 10. They said they're going to get a number 10. We have Jamiro. We have Bedoya. We have Brujo. Uh, Kai Wagner's coming back. You have Jacob Glesnes. You have... Jack Elliott, and you have Ray Gass with Andre Blake. That's a pretty good team, but you need a number 10. Okay, we all know we need another 10. I think they need a striker, and I think they need a, a center back. It doesn't have to be a starting center back. It could be a third center back, and they could do the rotation again. But I think we would probably all agree that they need at least three players. I wouldn't mind seeing four. I wouldn't mind seeing a right fullback. I wouldn't mind seeing a center back, a striker, and a number 10. Is that too much to ask? I think that's reasonable especially if you if you get have to have to play in the Champions League as well. Um I think that's I, I I would say four players. I expect them to make three signings. I would love to have four. They also have to learn how to leak to make things interesting. <laughs> Cuz <'Cause, laughs> these are boring. These are these are boring off seasons. Uh Mike says what's an acceptable level of reinvestment into the first team after the McKenzie and Aronson sales? Yeah, that's a good question. I I think um well, let's, let's just assume they they get the full nine million from the Aronson triggers and and marks. I don't know exactly what marks is, but let's say we're working with fifteen, right? Um, I'd say three to five million is acceptable, right? You get like a million dollar if you get a million dollar number ten, spend the rest on those other three positions. Even if you have to go to six million, because then you have what you're going to have nine million left to work with to put into the academy infrastructure, anything you want to. They have a good amount. Uh, the only other thing that bothers me, and actually Matt is uh, responding to him on Twitter here with, with what I was thinking. Uh, Matt says, especially in light of the missed revenue from the pandemic limiting crowds likely through the summer. That's that's the issue because I don't know. You would hate to have this situation where it's like, well, we lost this money that we should have had from fans being in the stands. So let's take some of the sale money and just use it to bolster, you know, bring us back up to what we should have been. That would suck if they had to do that because then it's like, 
you're losing money. That was supposed to be bonus money spent on other things instead of just reimbursing yourself for losses, you know? So I don't know if that's the case or not. It would be shitty if it was, but you know, I mean, everybody's dealing with it. It's at, at some point with COVID, you know, uh, George says, how excited are you to have a former center back as the new union color guy? Yeah. It's interesting. Dan, you know, well, Danny was, a. Uh, Danny Higginbotham was a was more of like a left sided. You know, his career earlier in his career, he played left back, and then he would play. I think he played for. Oh my god, where was he before Stoke? Was he at Southampton or something? I want to say he was. He was playing for a team that played three at the back, like three five two or five three two, and he played sort of as like a left center back. Uh, so he wasn't really. He was kind of a tweener. He, I think he played more left back than eventually with Stoke. Although he did play center back, but I think like when they in the years of. Uh, Oh my God! When when Stoke was decent, who were their center backs? It was Huth, Robert Huth, right? And then they had uh, Shawcross. Ryan Shawcross was the captain, right? So I think Higginbotham played left back on those teams, right? I have to double check on that. But no, he's a defender in general. I'll take it. You know, maybe we could have a real dorky conversation on the uh, Always Soccer in Philadelphia podcast, and I'll gush over the current informed center back. Uh, Walt says, "What should we realistically expect out of this team in the Champions League?" That's a good question too. I you know I don't know. It's because it's hard to say um, until I see what the roster is going to look like. But if you're t- if you're telling me that they're they're they get a game against Leon, I think they can compete with them for sure. They can compete with any of the MLS teams. Um, they can compete with Olympia out of Honduras. They can they can compete with Saprisa and Alajuense. You know so. I don't see why they they couldn't be competitive. I don't I don't I definitely don't think they're on the level of Monterey or Club America or if, or Cruz Azul probably. I mean, I think the best Mexican the best shot at beating the Mexican team is probably going to be Leon. But we could be competitive against all these all these teams. I don't I I think if they can get a win or two over like a Saprisa or something like that, that'd be a nice feather in the cap. Even if they get like a draw against a Club America or a Monterey or something like that, I think that's good too. I, I don't, I don't know. It, it's hard for me to say because I don't know what the hell the roster is going to look like. If you gave me the roster as it stands right now, I don't think they'd be very competitive with the Mexican teams. But if they make those three or four signings, I think they could, they could certainly um, go toe to toe with those other, those other teams. Uh, Jack Fritzadelphia is legendary. He says, do you think Kai will still eventually be sold to Europe even after his contract renewal? Uh, and if he goes, would you be fine with Matt Real as a starting left back? Yes and yes. Yeah, I don't think this closes the door. I don't think just because Kai signed a new contract closes the door on anything. He could very well play half a season and, and they could transfer him. He play a full season and they could transfer him. You know, He is getting a little bit older. But, uh, yeah, I don't I don't think that closes the door on any of, any of that at all. So. This was just procedural, you know, probably nothing materialized that was worth doing right now or nothing materialized at all. So you just bring him back, and uh, if he's got eyes to Europe, then you sell him later down the road. So, um, Dr. Strange Dupe says, if the union have no signings during the January transfer window, where would that put them in terms of a preseason table prediction? Oh, God. So if they don't replace McKenzie and if they don't replace Aronson, I mean, that, I mean, I guess maybe like fourth anywhere from like third to sixth, I guess, you know, cause Aaron and McKenzie were a big part of what they did last year. It'd be hard to, I, I couldn't put them in the top three if they didn't make any signings. Right. Um, like that old Tottenham uh, window from like a year or two ago where they just brought the same damn team back. <laughs> didn't make like a single signing at all and just tried to do it again. You know, that would be frustrating, you know, especially after the sale, if after the sale and having this money, it would be frustrating if they didn't do anything. 
But, you know, if this is going to be another joke of a season, not joke of a season, but another weird COVID season, and and you kick the can down the road and try to allocate resources to the next year, I think you'd be okay with that. I don't know. It's just hard to say. I, you know, with, there's there's so many moving parts, right? Uh, Trey says, are the union quiet on the transfer front because of roster size and the CBA issues? I'm sure that has something to do with it. But remember, last year this wasn't an issue. We didn't get jack shit from Ernst or from anybody else. You know, that's the downside of his his German pragmatism, you know, because <laughs> he's like <laughs> try to try to explain the concept of the media leak to somebody like Ernst Tanner. You know, imagine sitting in the room with him and saying, well, I know you want to keep everything close to the vest. And you don't want to give away anything, but you, know, you can drum up interest in the team and keep the fans engaged and get people excited and, you know, help some of the local reporters grow their profile. If you, you know, want to leak a thing or two, you know, stay in front of the stay in the headlines, you know, but. I think that's like a, you know, literally a foreign concept to him, you know. So we might just have to deal with a couple boring transfer windows as long as he's here, but we'll take it if the team's winning. So, uh, all right, here's the last one from Unkempt Surfer. He says, "What kind of challenges will they face playing teams from Mexico and Costa Rica? Uh, you know, outside of the standard Concacaf shenanigans, of course. Yeah, besides the." flopping and the fouling and the embellishing and the bullshitting. Yeah, you know those those teams are well. Those teams are all really good on the ball, you know, possession teams. How, how many years did we watch a CONCACAF Champions League where the MLS team had like 30% possession and we're just kind of sitting back and hoping to hit on the counter, you know, because Mexican teams are so good with the ball at their feet. And Saprisa as well, too. And Alajuelense has, has players, too. But And that, that's funky, too, for the, for the union because, uh, you know, they weren't a possession team, you know, even in MLS last year. You know, they created a lot of chances out of out of transition and out of defense and – um, you know, scored goals in a variety of ways. So it's not like they're going to get a stranglehold on a team and start knocking the ball around. The good thing is that that's not, they don't need to do that to be successful. You know, they won the supporters shield last year while not being a possession team. So common knowledge will say, look, if they can have success doing it that way, then they'll be okay conceding a lot of the ball to a, to a, you know, Leon or a Saprice or something like that. But, you know, in in a way I think they're not, one of the weaknesses of the team last year was that they were they weren't really built to play from behind necessarily. I, th- I think they were always like a front foot kind of choky out kind of team. And if a Mexican team would go up like one nothing on them, like twenty or twenty five minutes in, it's kind of hard for the Union to play their way back into those kinds of games. You know, that's why we did the comparison that they're like a uh, you know like the Ravens with Lamar Jackson. Like, is he really going to throw throw? his way back into a game if you're down by two touchdowns or something like that. That's probably the, the going to be the biggest uh, curve or the biggest um, difference between some of those those Champions League teams is that they're probably just going to boss possession. It's probably going to be a frustrating watch for a little bit to see how the Union deal with that and see how they can win the ball back and get out on the counterattack. But we'll see. Again, I, you know, I'm, I'm holding my breath and waiting for, uh, you know, some signings here and uh, – you know, don't expect any rumors or anything like that because they just they dropped Brujo on like a random Friday night last year, and then <laughs> I think Glessness was like later on. So uh, it's a little boring, but uh, hopefully you guys enjoyed the interview with Zoo. He's a really good dude and a soccer fan, and uh, we'll try to get some more people on the podcast coming up soon. But otherwise, uh, enjoy your winter and enjoy the time off, and we'll enjoy the Eagles coaching search. How about that?